Well, 2024 is just around the corner, dangerously close, and nobody can say for certain what it's going to hold. Lower rates and an economic recovery or downturn with even lower rates. All we can do is speculate. So let's talk to someone who deals with a lot of money. In fact, the super funds of 850,000 Australians to see how she sees next year and what's going to change in the super industry. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. Well, Mercer Super is part of Marsh McLennan, the global financial consulting firm that started life in the United States at the end of the Second World War. So they've been around for a bit. Uh, They are now operating in 130 countries with 25,000 employees, more than half of them are women and in Australia it provides superannuation for more than 850,000 people and Kylie Wilmot is their chief uh, investment officer she joins us uh, this weekend Hey Phil great to be here So I'd imagine Kylie uh, this is a tricky time for super funds I mean there's so many unknowns which obviously makes it difficult for life for you uh, but also for people who are seeing their super investments coming under pressure, and they have been over the last uh, year or so. So, I mean, very few are on defined benefits these days. So there will be some people who've seen that their uh, their super balance has gone down or slowed. So are people embracing more risk now because they want to try and recover some of that lost ground? Yeah, look, it can do. Um, we obviously try to engage with our members and educate them a bit on the long-term nature of super and and not to really make uh, knee-jerk reactions to their investment selection that might be a little bit based on fear and uncertainty um, as opposed to really taking a proper assessment of what their longer-term risk profile is. I think the average uh, default investment strategy for a superannuation fund in Australia tends to sit at around that about 20, uh, 75% allocation to growth assets and 25% defensive. Um, for most of Super, we take a slightly different approach, actually, because we think that uh, risk tolerance actually varies for members across their life. And so we, we deploy for our default strategy what we call a life cycle strategy, which means we actually take a very high level of risk um, in a default sense for our members when they're at early stage of their life. So we're right up at around 90% growth. Um, whereas for our members approaching retirement, we, we then step down that uh, level of risk very slowly from about mid-50s through to retirement age at age 65. Um, but even in post-retirement with longevity and the need to keep income up, there's still a need to take a reasonable level of um, exposure to growth assets in in retirement as well because you still really need to generate um, a decent decent return. Um, so that's sort of the default picture, I think. But um, yeah, you're right that um, it is a choice market as well. And so we and other super funds offer members uh, lots of choice on the menu to be able to dial up and down the risk spectrum depending on their own particular tolerances mm. and needs or to target um, particular in investments, um, thematics, that kind of thing, if that's the type of thing well, they're after. The safe choice, of course, you know, has, has been, traditionally has been Bonds, uh, but we've seen obviously this this massive sell off in the last year or two. Uh, the impact in the U.S. banking sector, for example, by several accounts has been at least six hundred and fifty billion dollars from the bond market collapse. So it's massive. So how have you dealt with that uh, with that you know problem? And is it all behind us now? Do you think? Yeah, and maybe I'll go back a little bit further because obviously bonds have you know for a long time actually they played a very strong role in portfolios in that sort of mega decade declining interest rate 
cycle, um, actually bonds generate a really decent return because as um, as interest rates fall, bond prices actually um, rise. And so that was quite a fertile period for a number of decades where you had a relatively low risk investment, defensive investment like bonds actually generating, playing a very, very strong role, um, providing returns as well. And then, then we went through the period of low interest rates um, and that was a really challenging time, particularly for retirees because the types of um, low-risk investments that could give a decent return, not only bonds but things like term deposits and elements of cash, um, that really went away and they were really forced, if they wanted to keep their expected return up, really having to go up the risk spectrum to be able to generate um, that return. And then, as you say, particularly in 2020. To when we had that extreme um, ramp up in interest rates that I think was uh, faster than anyone might have um, expected, actually quite spectacular, and that gave very negative outcomes for the bond markets. Um, so quite a challenging time, and also a breakdown of that tradi- one of the traditional correlations that we rely on, which is the equity bond correlation, where usually if equities are falling, bonds are doing relatively well, and that didn't happen um, where equities were falling at the same time as, as bonds because of that sort of extreme um, fear and uncertainty environment that we've got. So I think to, to your latter question, are we mostly through that? Yes, yes, I think we are. And if there's a silver lining in all of this is that from where bond yields are today, they're actually looking like a far more attractive um, investment and that role that they can play in a portfolio of generating a decent yield while still being a relatively uh, low-risk investment actually is back. I mean, you might have heard the catchphrase, bonds are back, and mm. I think to to some extent that's largely true. Um, Not so only are they are back, see- there's more of them than ever before. Yeah, yeah. So we are seeing retirees, yeah, and quite a quite valid strategy actually to be rethinking those allocations to to bonds. Um, we're certainly seeing term, things like term deposits come back into favour. And I think um, absolutely when you're at that um, end of the retirement spectrum or for any investor who's who's sort of risk sensitive, uh, I think that's actually, you know, that it's more favourable for them now, albeit having been through a period of 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 pain, um, but obviously, if you've also you've still got an opportunity to generate a higher return if you're able to um, take a higher level of risk. And so, for those younger superannuation members who have more time, I think still pursuing a a strategy that's got reasonable allocations or, or higher allocations to growth assets, things like equities, etc., still makes a lot of sense as well. Well, I mean, this has been unsettling times. I mean, no one expected interest rates to go up as fast as they did and as high as they did, uh, and you know possibly still going of course uh but you know we did have uh in the years up to the pandemic, really, uh, quite a rise in the uh, self-managed super funds. So about 6% a year from 2016 to 2021. So, in fact, I think about a quarter of all super assets are in self-managed super funds. Uh, so, but, you know, in those days, we knew bonds were stable and shares were going up. So that was an easy tool uh, to, to use, wasn't it? I wonder now whether we're starting to see people just shying away from that and thinking, well, actually, this, we've got to put this into into safer hands. Maybe I don't know as much about this as I thought I did. Yeah, look, I think it'll be interesting. I think there's been some early data points around that that may be suggesting there's elements of that. I think some of the trend reports that I've seen around self-managed um, super has um, 
the sort of the average startup age for setting up your own fund is later and the balance, the average balance of people setting up um, self-managed super funds is also jumped quite high, which so that does sort of indicate that there's an element in there of saying, actually, maybe this is too hard to do it uh, ourselves. And, you know, I think as we look at the environment, or maybe I'll go back to the environment that we've come from and where we think we're going, um, in that period, really in the whole post-global financial crisis period up really until 2022, I'd say it was, it didn't perhaps feel like it at the time, but on, on reflection, it was a relatively easy period to invest in because we had, it was relatively low growth, relatively high return as that very, very heavy monetary stimulus that came to support the economies um, in the recovery from the global financial crisis and only ramped up um you know, in many magnitudes um, to get us through the COVID crisis um, was really one major thematic playing out in markets through that whole time. And it was a very um, fertile time. A lot of that flowed into asset prices, of course. And that meant that you could pursue a pretty simple listed liquid passive vanilla 60-40, 70-30 kind of portfolio that actually generated a really good return. Now, a lot of those dynamics, as we look now, have shifted quite considerably. So the easy money days, the markets driven by monetary stimulus is certainly um, behind us at this point. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty. So we've had the return of inflation. We've had the interest rate uh, normalization. We've got a perhaps a far more uncertain geopolitical um, landscape playing out. We've got some of those um, longer term systemic challenges like the climate transition that we've got to navigate through. And so all of those things make us believe that as we look forward from here, um, really diversification in portfolios and robustness and resilience is going to be far more important. And that perhaps that simple listed liquid 60 40 put 60, 40 portfolios um, had its had its day and mm. so more sophisticated portfolios as we look forward. Right. And, that, here, that, right. and that obviously important. that includes uh, unlisted assets. So, you know, you have things like property yeah. development, infrastructure and the like. So are you piling more money into that sort of thing? Yeah, look, I mean, we absolutely think that private markets have an important role to play in building out that more diversified uh, portfolio position. And as you say, what what assets are we talking about when we talk about private markets and unlisteds? Primarily centres on unlisted property, unlisted infrastructure, private debt, private credit um, and private equity. Now, they all sit at different points um, really in the risk return spectrum and can play different roles in the portfolios. But if we sort of just tackle them briefly one by one, private credit, um, there's an opening up opportunity set there as the bank's, um, you know, regulation only gets ramped up all the time. And so opportunities for private investors to really step into a bit of a void that's been created um, by the bank sort of tightening up or stepping out of some of those traditional lending markets. And so private credit, you can get access to some really attractive um, yields and, you know, there's really strong diversification benefits that come through that. Um, so that sort of sits a little bit down there. It's not quite in the, the low, low risk part of the spectrum. It's probably a little bit higher risk than your traditional um, 
public market fixed interest asset classes, but certainly very strong, strong. And that would be you'd be looking globally for that. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's an opportunity set domestically as well, but um, I think if you're building a, a sort of a well diversified portfolio, you'd be looking to have both domestic and global allocations. Um, unlisted property, well, real assets, really unlisted real assets, which is both property and infrastructure. Um, they can give you access to investments that um, often they can be really uh, good in an inflationary environment because they often have cash flows that have got uh, links to inflation, um, which can obviously be quite good in the kind of environment that we're talking about. Um, but you can also target um, assets in there that are quite sort of economically resilient, um, particularly in infrastructure. You think a lot of around a lot of the regulated <laughs> utilities um, investments in there that the essential infrastructure, if you like, and so they tend to be quite resilient through economic cycles. But also the ability to lean into the growth of renewable energy, for example, and some of those future themes as we navigate. Yeah, so we're all transition. all around the world. We're all sort of heading to the same target, aren't we? So yeah. I mean, that's a that's a certainty that there'll be a lot more investment. In infrastructure for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so doing that in the unlisted markets, it gives you a good opportunity to sort of target those kind of investments. And then in property, unlisted property, so then now you're talking office buildings, uh, retail shopping centres, um, and increasingly things like um, logistics centres, data data centres, those kind of industrial type of property um, assets. And again, you know, I think within all of these asset classes, and I think it's true of any investment that you're making, you have to sort of, um, there's the the case for the asset class, but you also have to be um, quite uh, selective on the types of assets that you target um, as well. And so there's definitely pockets of challenge in the uh, commercial office part of um, the the property market really as we've you know had a, a shift in the way that we we work and office attendance and the rise of hybrid working so there are definitely pockets of challenge in some of the office markets but um if you think that if you counterbalance that with some of um perhaps the the opening up opportunity sets, which could sit around those data centers, think distribution centers for online, you know, the rise of online shopping and things like that. So, um, yeah, lo- lots of really nice assets that you can get in the private markets that you might not be able to, to access, um, in the public markets in the same way. And of course, you, you also get away from the, I guess, the, the, the daily volatility that you get, um, in the public listed markets where, you know, it's driven by the fundamentals in part and over the long term, hopefully that is what's reflected in the in the listed market prices, but you also get a lot of broader sentiment that comes into that, which means that, you know, you get a lot more swings and roundabouts in the values. So all the more reason why people, you know, perhaps are going to move away from uh, self-managed super because they can't do that sort of thing, of course. But, yeah, but also, it can, can be hard. And, yeah. and it, it gets, it also, of course, there's benefits of scale here. So does that, are we going to see more, Consolidation. So you, you folks, for example, you've just bought BT Super, of course, or merged. Well, I'm not quite sure what the technical term is, but anyway, you're uh, you're a bigger company than you were. So we're going to see more acquisitions like this uh, coming from you, but also just generally across the industry. Yeah, we're absolutely believers that scale is important. It gives you a lot of uh, a lot of buying power and ability to to. Um, to build both ca- capability um, and quality. I think in the in the 
uh, the offering that you have for your members and the ability to generate really strong returns, um, you know, with with really good value fees as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a trend that we're likely to see continue. Um, you know, I think from a Mercer Super perspective, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to be able to to do better for our members. And so if, you know, continued growth helps us do that, I think that's something that we're very open to. Um, but something that perhaps that we have as well that might be a little bit unique in this market is we do sit as part of a global investment organisation that manages um I think as at the end of September, the number was something like 380 US billion dollars. And so it's not just the local scale and funds under management that we have here that we can deploy for the benefit of our members and any other investors, but we're able to tap into that mm. that global scale as right. well. Right. But as you're growing, as the industry is growing, I mean, the number, the, the market perhaps is going to shrink because we've got an ageing population. It's less of an issue in Australia because we obviously we've got uh, more migration uh, into Australia. But, uh, you know, generally... Uh, we're going to hit a situation where we've got more people wanting to take money out of super than people wanting to put money in. So how problematic is that? Yeah, look, I think it's something that we all need to uh, think about system-wide. You know, we're not quite there yet, but, you know, I think that the superannuation system in Australia is very mature and doing a great job at the accumulation end of the spectrum. So getting people from the early stage of their careers up until till retirement. Um, but that focus on the post-retirement piece and how we um you know really sort of continue to help members through that decumulation phase is is something that I think is the next one of the next big areas of focus. Um, not only for us in terms of Mercer Super, but also for us as as an industry. Right. Well, I wonder whether that's addressed in the uh, the Global Pension Index, which you've just released along with the CFA uh, for 2023. Yeah. This looks at pension schemes around the world on a country-by-country country basis based on three factors. So you've got adequacy, sustainability, and integrity. So talk us very quickly through what those factors are and who comes out on top because Australia didn't get an A plus, did did we? So why are we letting ourselves down here? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, really proud. I think that we do partner with the CFA Institute to put that global pension index out. So 47 retirement systems around the world are benchmarked in that report. um, And as you say, um, measures against um, three sort of categories of adequacy. So how much money is, you know, are you able to, to generate for your members and retirees, um, sustainability? So how is the system set up to have long, long, long term sustainability of the whole system? Um, and then integrity is really the third criteria in there. So the governance that goes around it, um, the regulatory frameworks, things like that, the, the trust in the system. How is it set up to, to engender trust? Um, so Australia out of the 47 ranks fifth and gets a B plus. So we're going to say that's pretty good, but it's not, I think the highest uh, score in there is an A um, and that the Netherlands get that. And actually the Nordic countries uh, rate quite heavily um, in the up the top of the end of the, the index. 
um, what does Australia need to do? Well, I think it comes back to some of those earlier comments about the post-retirement piece. So we do a pretty good job, high contribution rates, a um, lot of preservation in the system, quite quite mature. So we're getting members to retire at this point with really nice, healthy balances. Um, and then we don't give them a lot of help from there. So lump sum payments, you know, there's no sort of structural um, need for, you know, for retirees to take an income stream. So, um, you know, I think that sort of focus on the post-retirement piece, looking at how, you know, we can help and build a little bit um, more of that um, structurally uh, really spreading that income um, over the life of the retirees is something that I think in particular, if we wanted to get an A, that would be the the thing that we'd need to change as a, as a local um, system. And I think we're all aware of that. We've had the retirement income covenant that came out last year. Most superannuation funds have got a first iteration of a retirement income strategy. Um, but I think it, I think most super funds would say, would say it's still very much a work in progress to build out that post-retirement phase. Yeah, it's interesting. It's part of the Australian psychology, I think, isn't it? That we've got so accustomed to yeah. putting money into a house. You sell the house, you get a lump yes. sum. We think super yeah. works the same way. But, you know, once you've got that lump sum, what do you do with it? Oh, better invest yeah. it. <laughs> How do we do that? Yes. Uh, so I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot, lots, lots to change. Look, I did also want to talk to you about the influence of AI and all that sort of stuff. We haven't got time. We're gonna, all that means is we're going to have to get you back on mm. again next uh, next year. Another day. Uh, another day. Another <laughs> discussion. Good to talk. To, great to have you on this weekend. Thanks. Pleasure. So I picked up three trends there on uh, where the super industry finds itself right now. There's more consolidation going on, more investment in unlisted assets, and more work needed on how people use and manage their funds uh, once they get into retirement. The disbursement phase. Interesting stuff, wasn't it? And she talked about the volatility that exists in listed assets. Well, we are back to talking about them on Monday morning with the weekday morning call. Uh, Nabs Atrill is joining me for that. And next week on the Weekend Edition, Nab CEO Ross McHugh so don't miss that one. I'm Phil Darby for NAB. Thanks for listening today. The Weekend Edition 